Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. What must I do to gain to inherit eternal life? Maybe you remember this question, right? It's posed to Jesus. The rich young ruler comes up to him and he asks what he thinks is a very profound question. What do I have to do to gain eternal life? What does it take to get to heaven? What do I have to do in order to gain that which is coming? How do I get in to heaven? Maybe it's a question that you're asking or you've asked at some point. What does it take? What do I have to give? What's the process by which we gain, we have, we inherit eternal life. Jesus, of course, answers the question directly, well, keep the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler has the audacity to say, yep, check, did that, to which Jesus says, okay, uh, let's have a real conversation. And see, the problem with the question is that it's a transactional question. What must I gain in order to possess that which is impossessible, right? Eternal life, eternity with God in his kingdom. And so Jesus goes, you're asking a transactional question, but the answer is far deeper than that. It begs the question that somehow we can own eternity, that we can possess it, that it's something to be grasped, as if we could give enough for it, as if we could serve enough for it, as if we could have perfect church attendance and somehow that would get us in through the gates. Could we write a big enough check to the poor to make sure that we got everything that was coming on the other side of eternity? What does it take, Lord, to gain eternal life? If I'm honest, in my private reflections with the Lord and my devotions and the conversations that I have, sometimes, sometimes I'm transactional. Sometimes I just have this opportunity with God. What are you asking from me? Could I ever give you enough? Isn't this enough, God? Haven't we paid the price? And God whispers gently that it costs everything and come and follow him, that it's a relationship. I think that at some level in our personal private walks with God that we want to systematize this relationship thing, that we want to make it something that's easy to grasp, easy to hang on to, that we would understand the full expectation of us. And Jesus invites us not into a transaction whereby we gain eternity, but he invites us into a relationship. We're in week two of a series that we're diving into the letter for the Ephesians. We are going to be in chapter two this week. Last week, we kind of started looking at chapter one. Ephesians is six chapters in the book, and we're taking eight weeks, and I already regret that decision. Uh, I'm already having to push through scriptures. We're already having to go way too fast, and I would like us to slow down even more. And, And that's why I'm inviting you, challenging you that as a church, that if every week we could kind of take it upon ourselves to read through the book of Ephesians together. It's one chapter a day, uh, or you can do it all in one sitting. It'll take you 20, 25 minutes maybe. Um, But I want us to walk through this together because there's so many nuances and so many things that get connected. Uh, And so I just want to invite everybody to be a part of reading through uh, Ephesians with us every week as we go throughout this series. So accountability time, lights up high. How many of you did your reading this week? 
couple people, okay, that's great. Uh, if you haven't, let me direct you, there should be a link. Uh, I don't remember if we put it in the bulletin, but porch.church backslash Bible or porchchurch.tv backslash Bible. Uh, but I, you can go there, you can download a reading app, right, that will connect, it will literally buzz your phone at a time that you say, and it will say, hey, read Ephesians chapter 1 today. And there are a couple of reading plans, you can do a 21-day reading plan through Ephesians, or there's an app that I just discovered and I'm really, really enjoying called Dwell uh, that will just have a a spoken word artist, somebody who puts some inflection into the text, and you can just hit play, and it will just play Ephesians for you. Maybe on your commute to or from work, uh, I've used it kind of as I fall asleep or as I wake up in the morning with my morning cup of coffee, Uh, but I just want us to kind of hear Ephesians to be in the midst of it, because I don't want us to miss out on so many things that are happening. So now that I've made you feel extremely guilty about not reading through Ephesians, uh, let's jump in here. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can just slip your hand up. Our ushers will bring you uh, a Bible. If you do that, we're on page 549, page 549, and uh, we're going to jump in at Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Of course, as always, all of our scriptures will be up on the screen as well. Let's jump in here. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Just a little light encouragement for you all this morning. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of Wrath. Remember, we just in chapter 1, Paul finished this great priestly prayer about how much he loves the Ephesians, how much he's been praying for them and exalting them in Christ, and then we take a hard left, right? Paul's starting with some really kind of deep, heavy stuff about what it is by nature to be sin and seeped in our transgressions, and there's a lot going on in those statements. I kind of want to focus in, though, on the tale of that, that we were by nature objects of wrath. See, when we live apart from God, when we're born in our natural state, we we kind of work in opposition to God. Death is at work in us instead of life. We're by nature, by the very virtue of who we are, in contrast with who God is and what he's bringing about into fruition in this world. Maybe you've heard this question asked this way, well, I couldn't believe in God because how could a good, loving God allow X, Y, or Z, insert tragedy here? If God is so good, if God is so powerful, then why is, you know, 14 out of 50 states on fire right now? Why would a good God allow so many tragedies to happen? And the reality, according to this text, is that there is a ruler who is currently at play in the world that is in opposition to God. And when we find ourselves out of community, disconnected with God, we find ourselves kind of in view and in lieu with this other opposing power that's working on there. So the answer, quite frankly, isn't that God causes those things to happen. It's that perhaps that the people of God haven't come up in the ways in which we should. God doesn't cause those things as much as it's simply the way in which the world works itself out. 
which is problematic because for you and for I and as Paul exerts there, hey, we all once lived this way. As a matter of fact, we start out spiritually separated from God. We start out with this opportunity to be disconnected from Him rather than connected. See, when we're dead in our sins and transgressions, we gratify the desires of our flesh. And when we pursue and live out something that is contrary to God's best for our lives, we set ourselves up in opposition to God. Notice the phrasing of that last word, that we were by nature objects of wrath. See, a lot of times we think that God is choosing to afflict us, that God is doing something negative. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that because we're in opposition to God, because we have not yet been adopted into His family, then the natural thing, the opposite thing, is just that we're not a part of that. God isn't actively pursuing us in the hatred aspect as much as it's simply the nature of what it is to be separated from God. When we are dead, when we're separated from God, when we live out ungodly principles, when we live in sin and are unrepentant, we allow little sins to invade our hearts and lives, and the base text of that is that we invite death in while we reject life that God offers us. Right? It's not a choice. It's not that life chooses to be absent. It's just how things work. The two are mutually exclusive. You cannot be alive and dead at the same time. Nor is there a gradient. There aren't things that are becoming alive and things that are becoming dead as much as there simply is things that are alive and things that are dead. Spiritually speaking, it's the same thing. We all start out dead. We start out living for ourselves. And the only issue with that is that dead people don't tend to do much. Right? When we partner with death and we find ourselves stuck in this pattern, our actions invite death in favor of life. This is why sin is such a big deal. This is why it isn't small and it isn't just one time and it isn't just an isolated area. It's inviting poison into our lives. It's setting us up in contrast and being contrary to what God has. So first blank in your bulletin, if you're filling it in, see what we did is to some extent we partnered with or participated with death. Notice the past language that Paul uses. He doesn't describe this as the, as the Ephesians church in its current reality. He says, you used to be this way. You used to live in this manner. This used to be your story, but something has changed and something is different. Here's the reality about when we partner with death. That's that dead people don't do anything of eternal significance, physically or spiritually. Dead people don't do anything of eternal significance. They don't have the opportunity. It's not within them because they can't. They're separated. Um, they don't have that opportunity, right? They may give back. They may be successful. They may have bridges and schools and roads named after them in, the in honor of the tremendous work and their generosity. But the bottom line is that eventually they'll be forgotten. Right? This isn't the movie Coco, right? We don't live on forever just because of our memories. As a matter of fact, let's just do a quick thought experiment. Think of the oldest person that you can think of. Like, I don't mean like alive, right? Don't think about your, the oldest grandma that you could name or any of those types of things. But think about the, the largest name in history that you can recollect. Just kind of at a glance here. Don't use the Bible. That's cheating. Um, Right? Maybe you remember some people from the 1900s that invented something. If you're a real Renaissance scholar, maybe you remember a painter from the 1500s. 
Maybe you're a student of history and you remember Greeks and Romans and all of those things, but chances are you only remember those empires or just the rulers of those empires and only because of their connection with the Bible. But if we rewind even further than that, the, the average person of society is forgotten. They don't, their memory doesn't live on no matter how successful, how generous, even kings are wiped off the face of the earth. See, when we start off spiritually dead, disconnected from God, dead people don't do much, physically or spiritually speaking. And again, we're not victims in this process. If you've ever not committed a sin, please step up to the microphone. I will yield the rest of the time to you. We'd love to hear your story. But we can all own the fact that just as Paul says, we used to live in this way. This used to be our reality. And the problem with that is that dead things, dead people can't do much of of eternal significance. So what are dead people to do? How do we gain eternal life? How do we grasp that heaven which is in front of us? How do we have our failures translated into something that's meaningful for eternity? The good news is, is that while we can't do much, God is plentiful and abundant in that. And Paul enters that into the story next. Let's continue reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But, it's a great but in Scripture, right? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And that even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Paul says, see, look, you you were dead. There was nothing you could do in and of yourselves. We were by nature, not by God's choosing, not even by our choosing. That's just how the equation maps itself out in opposition to God. But while we were in opposition to God, it says that God, who is rich in mercy, then chose to come and give us life in the midst of that, right? Who chose to do this? God did, right? There's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves. What did he do? He gave us life while we were spiritually dead. Why would he do this? It says because of his great love and because of his rich mercies for us. How he did it in Christ and when, according to chapter 1, was before the foundations of the world, right? This is why it's so important to understand that when we choose sin and we choose self, we choose death, to note that God doesn't hate us in that equation. God doesn't actively push back against us. When we're dead and separated, when we are coming to the full recompense for the wrongs that we've created, it says that's when God reaches out in love for us. Not to condemn us, not to push us even further, not to convince us about how horrible of sinners that we are, but he says, I see you dead in the actions that you're taking, and I want to invite you to something greater. I want to give you life, and not only life, he wants to adopt us royally into his family. Note that it says he raises us up with Christ, and he seats us among the heavenly realms. So do some time travel with me. Remember back in our series, Party, we talked about what it meant in this culture to sit down and share a meal. What does it mean in this culture to sit down and share a meal? Anybody remember? You awake out there? It means equality, right? 
it means that there's an acceptance going on, right? You didn't eat with kings. Kings ate at their own table and other people ate down here. God says, no, he raises us up with Christ and he sits us at the same table. Last week we talked about in chapter one that he talks about he adopts us as his very own sons. This is the identity that we've been given, not to be stuck dead and separate from God, not to just inherit the nature in which we were given the choices that we've made to choose death over life consistently. It says God intervenes, invites us to a different story, and not just life, but life at the king's table, life in the king's presence, life at the table shared with Jesus Christ and with God. Why would he do such a thing? Because of his great love and great mercy for us. It's by his grace that we are saved. And saved is really a terrible word because it's steeped in religious connotations and all those types of things. What are we talking about? We're talking about death to life, breath in our lungs, a place in an eternally significant story, life that isn't resigned to mediocrity or loneliness or boredom. You are a child of the King, no longer dead in your sin, but alive in Christ, adopted into the heavenly realms. If that doesn't get you excited this morning, then I don't know what could possibly do it. See, what God did was make us alive in Christ. We were dead. There was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves. God did it for us. He raised us to life. So let's go back to our initial question. What must I do to gain eternal life? The short, sweet answer is nothing. It's a gift. God did all of the work. Let's continue reading verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved. That's the same thought he just introduced us to. But he adds a component, through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What does it take to inherit eternal life? Everything God did, plus nothing that we could possibly do, and trusting that that's the reality, that that's the truth that God gave to us and all we simply do is accept the gift because it's nothing that we could do on our own to reach our way to God. So why didn't Jesus say that, right? Rich young ruler comes up to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eh, nothing. I'll take care of it. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he make this whole cosmic balancing act between heaven and eternity so much simpler? Why doesn't he remove all the religious jargon? Here's one reason that I think he might do that. As human beings, we don't like uh, nothing. We want it to cost us something. We want to be involved somehow in this transaction. Things that cost us nothing, we tend to treat like nothing. If you don't believe me, look at McDonald's Happy Meal toys strewn about your trash and garbage and room. Talk to me about birthday presents that they wanted so, so badly at the time, and then we find them broken the next day. When things cost us nothing, when there's no intrinsic value in it, we don't tend to honor that piece of it. So how do we learn about something that's of infinite value and worth, about eternity and about a relationship with Jesus, something so complex that we're correlating it with life and with death? How do you make that an easy answer? Jesus' answer is you, you don't. I can't make it simple for you. If you want eternity, then you have to come hang out for a while. You have to come and be 
close. You have to see it. You have to live in the context of relationship. I would venture to wager that it's why you're at church this morning, maybe, probably, is to get a little real life kind of rubbed off on you, to see something perhaps bigger than yourself, to get a little perspective and reorient yourself to remind you that while salvation is free, it is also costly. While it is a gift, it also demands something from us, that when life is given, death is always trying to crawl its way back in. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. And to give up everything. Come in and be close and also learn. What can a dead person do to become alive except God's gift of life? Can a man really be born again? Nicodemus asked Jesus, and the answer is, yeah, with God, all these things may be impossible, but with God, he paves the way for life. See, to gain eternal life, one must simply trust that God gives it. Grace from God through faith, the belief, the ascent, the walking through that God has already provided everything that we need in his love and in his mercy and in his grace through Jesus Christ. When we were at our very, very worst, that's when God chose to come and save us. What does it take? It takes nothing and everything all at the same time. It's nothing that you could do on your own, and yet it exacts everything from us to follow and pursue a love relationship with Jesus. We are brought to life, and yet continually we seem to choose death and separation over and over again. See, we said that the rich young ruler, that he asks the wrong question, which is, what do I do to gain, to possess, to inherit? How much do I have to write the check for? What actions do I have to take to possess eternal life? And we said that's the wrong question. I, I think the right question for us today might be, what do I do with the eternal life that I've already been given? Because it's already yours, it's already been poured out, displayed. So the question is not, how do I gain that which I already have in Jesus? It's how do I live that perspective out in my comings and goings, in my day-to-day -day activities? What do I do with the life that I've been given? Let's finish up Ephesians chapter 2 by going to verse 10. We'll skip back to verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, it's not what I must do to gain life, right? We don't come to church in order to gain eternity. We don't serve in order to get on God's good side. We don't give to the poor or take care of widows and orphans because this is what it takes to gain God's favor. No, because I've been raised to life, because I have God's favor, because I am created in Christ to do good things, what shall I do with the life that I've been given? Not to pay off the debt of your salvation, not to try to break even with God, but because he's lavished his grace so greatly on me, how do I live out the true life that's been given to me? See, we don't have to do something to become alive. We do something because we are alive. We don't have to do something in order to receive from Jesus. That comes from his free gift and our faith and belief that that's what's true and right and aligning ourselves with it. But we do things in this world. We live out our faith in order to prove that life is at work within us. 
The word workmanship here, right, is the word poema. It's where we get the word poem. It means masterpiece. It means literature. It means art. And his, and I'm sure that you've heard this before, right? Paul's words are that you are his masterpiece. You're the crowning jewel of his creation. Who you are now is God's poem, his masterpiece. We were dead in our sins and transgressions. Nothing we could do to make our way back to God. We were spiritually dead, but God gave us life when we were dead and couldn't do anything on our own. And the point of that is to make us into his workmanship, is to make us a song that he sings for himself, to make it something that reflects his divine image that we care about in this world. We were made alive to do good works. What must we do to inherit eternal life? In Jesus, you are eternal life. In Christ, you've been given life and life to the full, and now it's what do you do with the gift that you've received? See, sometimes I think we just need to do stuff. Sometimes we need to stop thinking through the theoretical exercises and just believing the right things, and sometimes we need to do the things that God has put us on earth to do. Right? Quick survey. How many of you had babies because God said, be fruitful and multiply? And you were like, well, that makes the most sense because if God said to do that. How many of you had babies because you like to do stuff? <laughs> right? Sometimes it just takes some doing. It just takes doing the thing that God equipped us to be able to do. See, so often in church we're sitting back and waiting to be told what to do, except none of us like to be told what to do. Amen? Right? Like none of us are just waiting going, man, I wish somebody would add some things to my to-do list because I don't have enough to do. We can't wait around and be told what to do. Instead, we must see where God is at work and to do the things that he's given to us because God is already speaking through the life that is present within you. Day after day, the heavens pour forth speech. Everything projects God's glory, and we are invited to participate in life, and sometimes we're waiting around for instructions when God's already given it to go and do something, to be his workmanship, his poem, his masterpiece in the world. This is why it's important to know our place, that we sit at God's table, that we're not far from him, that we're not pushed back, that we're not second-class citizens, but that he raised us to life to do something good for his kingdom. And too often we take the mentality that heaven is out there somewhere and we're just passing through earth. Scripture says that we bring about God's kingdom here and now onto the earth. This is why the things that we do here to steward creation matter because creation belongs to God and if we're God's people it belongs to us see there's a component of this world of this life that has to do with ownership that we own this thing that God has called us to whether that's your family whether it's your home whether it's your job it's your car all those types of things when you own something I don't have to tell you to take care of it do I have to tell you not to crash your car no because you own it. Do I have to tell you to take care of your house? What about taking care of your kids? You understand intrinsically that this is mine, that it belongs to me, I have to take care of it. Here's the reality. Creation, brothers and sisters, is ours. We're the stewards of it. God says, this is mine, and because you're mine, this is yours. The kingdom of God is here and now. It's among you. It's not out there somewhere else. So what are we doing to actively bring about life in a world that is possibly dead? What are we doing to shine the light and the love of Jesus into places and corners and reaches of the world where it just needs us to do stuff, not to be told what to do? 
Last blank there. Stop waiting to be told what to do and start doing something. Start doing something. Start putting your hand to the plow. Start seeing a need and going, I could do that. Again, there's a list of articles that I could give you. You could sign up for kids' ministry. You could be a greeter. You could do all those things. You could send an email to the office and just say, hey, you got a couple hours free on Thursday. Is there something that I could be? If you own this thing that we call church and you see something that needs to be fixed, then take it of mind of yourself to do something. I know this gets a little bit deep into the weeds, so let me just give you some examples. Uh, talking to a couple people. Amy, she has a heart for fellowship. She's going to start doing something about it by inviting people to come over and to be a part of a small group of a conversation that's happening. Heather saw a gap in women being connected, and so she decided to step in and do something about it. Nobody told her to do it. She just saw a need, and she stepped in. Michelle has a vision for seeing kids get educated in Africa, and she did something. She put her money where her mouth is. She flew across the ocean, and now she's bringing it back to us and to her family. She's doing something because she saw the need. Mindy saw a gap in our youth, lead, youth leadership, and she did something. She said, I don't know if I'm equipped or qualified or if I can even handle teenagers, but somebody's got to do it, and so I'm going to do something about it. We had kids ministry people step in to serve in kids ministry because we said, hey, we're not going to be able to do kids ministry. And people stepped up and they said, you know, I don't know if I'm gifted in kids. I I don't know if this is my long-term calling. I don't know if I hear the Holy Spirit telling me to do it, but I'm just going to do something about it. The Crables need meals because they've got a new baby. Who's going to do something about it? We need babysitters for VLT. Who's going to do something about it? Stop asking or stop waiting to be told what to do and start doing something because you're alive and you're alive to do something for Christ. And it doesn't just end here at the local church. It ends in our world. It ends in the occupations that we take. It ends on the subway, on the rides that you take into work, on the light rail. It's everywhere. You are God's masterpiece, his workmanship. You are light and life and love poured out for the world. Stop worrying about getting into heaven and start worrying about how we make life come here and now in this place. I want to invite the band to come up and we're going to sing one final song and I just want to end with this whole thought. So maybe you'd call these action steps. I don't know what you'd do. Stop partnering with death. Stop sinning, stop inviting those things into your life that's past, that's how you used to live. Instead, accept life. It's a gift, you can't earn it. Maybe you need to repent and go to Jesus and say, I've partnered with death and sinned too much and I just need to accept your free gift of life. Last, you need to do something. You need to be actively engaged in bringing about God's kingdom here on earth. The message of this tiny section of scripture is simply this, that we were dead, we've been raised to life to do something for God. And far too often we get this backwards and we think we have to do something in order to get life and let me tell you that leads to death. Don't mess up the order of the story. You're alive in Christ to do something, not for your own works, not to earn anything, but because he loved you and raised you to life, how will you shine that gift out? Would you bow your heads with me? I want to encourage you to just speak to the Lord, to ask him to lay anything on yourself that you might need to hear today. Maybe there's a piece of that scripture that just stuck with you. Maybe about the way that you used to live and you're going, I didn't used to live that way. I'm still living that way. Maybe you've been fighting to find the gift of life and you keep striving and you keep trying. You think maybe if I work a little harder or 
show up to church or do this a little better and maybe the Holy Spirit's just telling you, I love you, I want you to be alive and there's nothing more that you need to do except to trust that I've raised you to life except to partner with Jesus and to agree with him that he died to forgive you of your sins so that you could spend eternity, so that you could gain and possess eternal life, not through a transaction, but because it's a gift. Or maybe today you just need to reflect on doing something and going, man, I'm showing up to church, I'm doing the church thing, I'm singing the songs, but maybe you just need to do something. Maybe God's put something on your heart. Maybe every time you walk to work, you see the same person and you just need to reach out. Maybe a new neighbor moved in and you just need to strike up a spiritual conversation. Maybe every time you walk into church and you see something that bugs you, and maybe it's just time to do something about it. See, we were dead by nature. We were objects of wrath, but God gave us Life and that life is to do something to shine his light around in the world among us. Heavenly Father, sometimes we, we do in order to get life and we get the thing mixed up and then we wonder why we're so spiritually empty all of the time. Maybe it's because we're trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to ask the question, have I done enough to earn eternal life? And instead, Jesus, what you want to say is you can never earn my love. It's yours freely. And because I love you so much, I want you to be a life giver, a life carrier, and to carry it into the world. Don't do something to earn my love. Do something because I love you. Heavenly Father, would you resound that message in our hearts? Would you help us to carry it with us throughout this week? Would you remind it uh, to us as we get dressed and head to work, as we take care of our kids, as we interact and have conversations? And would you help us? to be messengers of life in a dead world and to do something not in order to earn life but because we've been given such a great and precious gift. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's kids agreed together and said,